Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle, and you're listening to A Private View. On today's show, I have Clinton King. His show is Living Ends at Carl Kostyev Gallery. It's on until the 2nd of April, 2022, and there's a closing reception on Friday the 1st from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Clinton King's work has been described as work about transformation, about revealing the things that you can't reveal or uncovering secrets that you didn't even know existed. Um, His imagery is broad, but it's also quite singular. You're looking at work that has an active narrative, but also at the same time looks abstract. So there's a lot going on. I think it's informed by his uh, work with Carl Jung, spiritualist painters. I won't continue to wax on about Clinton's work because he's on the phone from Brooklyn right now. Hi, Clinton. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. How was that intro? It's always hard to do it in front of the artist. Oh, it's it's interesting to hear how people read the work. You know, I'm still very new to this. And just to find new perspectives on the work is always interesting. Because there's ideas that I think I have about it. And then there's other people's perspectives. And sometimes I find that that they add things that I've never known. And sometimes they validate things I thought I knew. So, I mean, very few people have talked about the spiritualist painter aspect, to be honest with you. I'm surprised that you have. I mean, no one's really talked to me about that before. No, I think I I know that if a lot of what what, uh, inspired you was man and his symbols or Carl Jung, there's no denying that there's there's a search for that. Uh, and and when I know that you're interested in Albert Owen and Martin Kippenberger um, and change and transformation, plus a little research led to your martial arts practice. So for me, it was obvious that that's part of what's going on there. Also, I'll tell you another thing. I went to an, a, a talk the other night and Ming Smith was a photographer that was in conversation and she was talking about jazz and spiritualism and making the spirit real. It seems to be post-pandemic. More people are honest about that side of life. Well, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of talk about what the pandemic has done to people, uh, society at at large. Uh, And I mean, I was surprised that there wasn't more music, which I do believe it was still, still in the process. I think people have it processed. And I mean... I'm sure that you've seen it in your own life, but I've seen the different ways that people have dealt with the pandemic. It has, says a lot about the nature of isolation on people. Uh, not to get too deep into just all the ideas of thought, but in my, and I speaking for myself and my wife and my, and a number of my friends, um, it was a time when I got a lot of work done. And at the same time, I know a lot of people watched a lot of TV. Uh, So uh, some people are still almost shy of coming out, but there's been a lot of music, a lot of writing done and a lot of art being made. It was, and that was made during that time. And I feel like being away from the scene, turning inward, these things were inevitable. And, and in isolation, this is going to be something that we're going to be, I think this is going to be talked about for a very long time. It's funny. I think that's why I did notice the spiritual aspect of your work and, and, and sort of that, that 
what's left to do when you're in isolation? If you're not someone who turns on Netflix every day, you you go into kind of metaphor and signs and symbols and uh, and looking for answers. And I think that I've visited your show a few times now, and there's something Huxley-esque about it. And there, there's you're looking for grids, and yet I can't figure it out. And I think that's why I keep going back. I knew I was speaking to you today, and I thought I just can't articulate what it is I'm seeing. Can you? Well, I think back to, to touch back to what you mentioned about the pandemic and the time alone. I think people were forced into an experience, an experience that most people try to fill their life up to void. <laughs> that is, I mean, not to get too too. Um, psychological here, but the experience of itself uh, when I, in isolation, I mean, this is something that, you know, monks do. This is something that uh, uh, Christ did. This is something that yogis did uh, or do in this sort of forced isolation. And I think that the works that I've been developing have a lot to do with just the experience of creating them and a sort of I come from, I, I have my master's degree in sculpture and I think I really kind of cut my teeth in sculpture as, insofar as the way that I approach the practice of making art, which has you know changed of course over the years. But uh, I think that little bit of that strategy would come out of my experience with Saul LeWitt, where I, I was, I worked for uh, yeah, my jaw dropped doing, when I read that. Yeah, I, that was yeah, amazing. Wall drawings. Yeah, and then I never worked on the sculpture thing. I, I had I had traveled from. I was living in Tokyo for a couple of years, and then I had moved. Um, I had heard I had a show in Hong Kong. It's a small show group show, and they were looking for an artist. Uh, they were asking artists in Hong Kong if, to work for the Lewitt retrospective at Mass Mocha. And so if anyone's not hearing this correctly, you were working with Saul Lewitt. Well, I mean, he had already passed away. I, I, he had just passed away, but he had set up the um, the retrospective already. So I came in to just assist in the wall drawings. Uh, and I used that excuse to get out of Asia at the time because I was sort of getting stuck in Japan. I was in Tokyo and I had graduated with a degree in ma a master's degree in sculpture. But my practice up until that time was just finding you working with found objects, random things, collecting them and making kind of impromptu sculptures. This very spontaneous, but Japan is so clean. <laughs> I could find no trash <laughs> to work with. And to top it off, I had no space to really, um, you know, I'd like to Tommy mats in a small apartment. I had no space to really to work like that. So I, I kind of worked with photography and started to, think about new ways of working with my practice and it was sort of suffering and my when I decided to go to Mass Mocha to work for LeWitt I kind of came in with fresh eyes and um, was very impressed with this idea of LeWitt's he has many ideas but this idea of uh, setting a framework and then adding an additional element into the framework and then figuring out how to exhaust all the possibilities within that framework. 
And this idea of limiting things to say just primary colors and black or plus gray and white or something was one way for me to take my practice, which was totally wide open, anything, everywhere, anything could be art to me at the time and sort of uh, shrinking it down, compressing it and finding out what was possible with less and that's kind of what started this process of painting for me. I just had bought a bunch of small canvases and thought, well, I'll, I'll try to make a painting that looks difficult, you know, and, it, and kind of proving to myself that if I could make a painting, then I was, the way that I was approaching art was either right or wrong <laughs> for my, for the, for the, I guess you could say right or wrong for the circumstances that I was in at the time, which was, you know, changing world, a changing city, a changing mind. I had been sort of isolated in Japan and uh, was kind of coming into New York City kind of naive. And there's a lot I could say about that move to New York City, <laughs> including, you know, working for galleries and getting introduced to the gallery scene and, and you know, getting in introduced to the art world at that, at that, at that, that quickly. It's about setting a discipline in place. Uh, and then and then looking for, dare I say, enlightenment through that discipline and sort of minimalizing what you're exposed to, but taking on everything and finding where the connection is. Yeah, I've, I've, when I was in school, I was so fascinated with the 70s and particularly minimalism. And that was, I mean, even when I was an undergrad, I was very interested in minimalism. But it was always funny to me at the, around the same time that pop art was happening as like a shadow to it or one being the shadow to the other. And I always felt that to be very an, in an interesting period of time, pop art and minimalism. Um, you know, I was never considered myself a maximalist, but at the same time, the kind of music that I like to play and the drum, when I used to play drums a lot was very aggressive and very fast and very compl complicated. And I always sort of dealt with this duality inside of my, in, within myself. And I think that the current body work that I'm producing is in some ways um, the closest thing to a unified form, uh, dealing with my past and dealing with the, that division and that duality within me. And I think that your description of the work in the beginning of the conversation was actually pretty interesting because it is, it is both. It's very minimal in the sense that like when you listen to black metal or, or speed metal or, or uh, very fast punk or whatever you, you like, it sort of gets so aggressive that it reduces itself back to the, just the basic rhythm and harmony, which I feel like is some somewhere that I've sort of pushed the works if that makes sense. It made sense to me. There were worlds within, you were looked, they were, well, if anyone's looking at it, and the reason you paint is because it's impossible to say in words what people are painting, but I'm going to give it a go. It looks yeah, as though there's structures going through, like going through chaos is the obvious word, maybe the overused cl cliche word, but that's what I'll use for this conversation. And there's great structures going through it that are almost like roadways or maps. There's so many different ways of reading these paintings at Karl Kostchev in the Living End show that um, that I loved that I couldn't figure it out. There was no answer. I wasn't finding an answer. And that was, that was really intriguing. Uh, so 
congratulations on that for confusing us all. Thanks. Well, it's, it's funny because I, I, I went to, I hadn't been to Chelsea for a long time, and I actually went to Chelsea yesterday and just kind of poked around, and I saw the Joe Bradley show at Petzl. Now, I've been a fan of Joe Bradley. I mean, he's a good painter. Uh, it was sort of refreshing to see this new body of work of his, regardless of whether or not it's his best work. Um, he, his use of um, composition, I guess I'm seeing him through the eyes of de Kooning, I must admit, because I'm reading the de Kooning biography right now. And that brought me back to looking at de Kooning's paintings recently, just like the last few days. And, you know, I have conversations with my wife, uh, being a figurative painter, uh, Julie Curtis, um, about the difference between abstraction and, and figurative painting, or, or at least image-based painting. And looking at the Joe Bradley and seeing Joe Bradley through the eyes of de Kooning um, was interesting because abstract, and I, I, I have a lot of these ideas about what's the difference between abstraction and, and, and image-based art. But with, with like de Kooning, for instance, you're looking at the mark that is the decision. The decision made and the mark are the same thing. Of course, figurative painting is very, very compositionally figured out, and some of it's very ge geometrically figured out. But the mark and the decision coexist at the same time. I think with my paintings, the marks that I make are so dense as far as how much how much information is is in one brush stroke, meaning that the brush that I when I load the brush up to to apply it on the canvas there's many value shifts, many chromatic changes in it, tertiaries, primary, secondary colors inside of the brushes I'm putting it on. I might wiggle the brush stroke. I might make it thin, I might make it th uh, very narrow. Sometimes I connect the end of one brush stroke to the, the beginning of the next. And to me, it's about the The brush strokes themselves look very highly condensed with information. And it's sort of a, where de Kooning or would would maybe scrape or just make a mark and the mark and the immediacy and the composition are one thing happening at one time. My paintings look a little stranger because they look rendered, yet they're a mark kind of applied the same way, one building off of the other. And I think that when you see image-based art, it's hard to see past the image. The image is adding so much information and adding another level onto it that it's the decision and the mark and the immediacy of that are sort of superseded by meaning or, or, or narrative or all the things that come to mind when we look at an image, it's recognizable, including culture, all the, all the baggage that goes into to imagery. So my approach to experience is at this point in my career, my life as an artist uh, is what I'm most interested in, but the mark itself is more rendered, strangely. I it's hard, I'd have to bring in uh, Richter, but I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes I here. want you to bring <laughs> up R Richter, because I wondered if you yeah. were using squeegees or taping or- Never. Okay, so that's, how do you get that effect? How do you Shift get that? That's incredible. This has yeah, taken that's... it to a new level. So I'm looking right now at, yeah. at Trist's, Trist, say it for me. 
the title of yes i don't know how you got that with brushwork can we talk about that fascinating yeah well it's funny i wanted i've told this story before but it's it's an interesting one when i was in grad school at the artist studio chicago i just happened to pass because we had our little passes and we can just we could enter any museum when you're a student so occasionally on the way back i just walk through the museum that's a museum of contemporary art and they just happened to be having a Richter retrospective there. And I, I, at the time I didn't care about Richter and didn't even consider him because I was a sculptor and I couldn't help it, but just sort of go take a glance at one. And as I walked into it, I approached one of the large uh, abstract build or smear paintings, whatever you want to you know, call them. And as I was looking at it, I couldn't believe I just kept getting closer and closer to it. And then the, the guard had kind of come close to me like, uh, you're getting a little too close. And I couldn't help it because the amount of information that was in the smear was incredible. It was the closer I got, the, the more detailed it got. And I realized this is more real than the most realistic painting. Right. And then I realized, but he's kind of like a sculptor. Yeah. He's using the material like the way that a sculptor uses, like you, a, when you're making sculpture, you have to work with gravity. You have to work with material, the materiality. And you your body. Make, and your body. Yeah, your body. Yeah. You can't, yeah, you can't make a material do or an object hold more weight than it's possibly, you know, that it can possibly hold or it won't prop itself up. He was using paint like a sculptor. And then the results who were getting were like the most, like was like a photograph. They were like a photograph, these smears. And I never forgot that moment, even though I continued to do sculpture for years after that. If I can add something, they're like a photograph from a moving vehicle. Yeah, that's one way to look at it. It's funny because he paints on photographs. Yeah, he actually smears paint on photo. He's, you know, and then he paints photorealistic. He's amazing. <laughs> I, I like that you like other artists too. That's a good enthusiasm. I changed everything about the show today during this conversation. I'm going to go back to who you are, where you were born, what your early life was like. I think we know what your cultural influences are. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I do have some secret cultural influences, but uh, I am was raised in the forests of Ohio. Um, I was, uh, my mom had me when she was quite young. She was in living in Ohio in a small town. We lived about 10 minutes on the outskirts of that down a dirt road. So I had lots of free time. I played in the trees in a forest or old, old strip mines there. I fished, I hunted. My dad was a hunter and I had lots of, lots of freedom, lots of freedom since I was a kid until high school. When I finally, when I graduated high school, I got out <laughs> as fast as I could at the time. And you said so, you began imagining a life as an artist, and I love that you said that because unless you were, unless you had to make your way to an art capital, not everyone was encouraged to believe there was a living that could be made as an artist. Yeah, I can. I just had a few very, I mean, for lack of a better term, just profound moments, and as a kid making things, and. My grandma would also give me a set of oil paints when I was very young, like too young to have oil paints. I didn't understand that you had to have paint thinner. I didn't understand that it was flammable. 
um, I was compelled once to take this spike my, I found in my dad's shed and then hammer it into this rock that was like in the woods. And I like carved a divot into it, but I was so obsessed with it that I even put on my dad's like coon hunting headlamp, you know, and went out there at night and was digging into it and after dark into this rock. And it just felt like I was making you know, art. Yeah, no, the sculptural <laughs> process was there, wasn't it? Yeah, I felt like I was like, a, you know, in Close Encounters, and that guy's like, this means something with his mashed potatoes. I just <laughs> <laughs> felt compelled to do that. But, you know, the, I was in, you know, I was in a small town for a long time. But when I finally, in, in late, late in high school, I decided uh, to, to try it out. I, I applied to art school and Columbus College of Art and Design in Columbus, Ohio. And that was that was the beginning of it. I mean, I just took a leap. I couldn't do much. I didn't wasn't a very good student in school. And I figured, well, I might as well just start with what I do best. And then one thing led to another. And I was turned into a painter in my undergrad. And you worked in galleries as well, which is yeah. interesting because not a lot of artists do both. I, I I know there's a huge difference between what happens in the studio and what happens in commercial galleries. Well, I started in working for the Columbus Museum of Art a long, way back then in my, in my like early, maybe in my early 20s, maybe 20. And um, then this is in the 90s. And then I also worked for the artist Ann Hamilton. I assisted her for a little while. So I, I had pretty good experiences with seeing the way that professionals worked and how work was shown and so when I, when I, many years later, when I did make it to New York City, I already had that experience. In fact, I had one of the best experiences in Chicago when I, I was one of the paid interns there at the Art Institute doing those little lectures that you, those free lectures. Yeah, you know, those, yeah docents yeah, who go give. around and tell people about the art. They're wonderful. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So we had three months to study and make a couple lectures and then we had some time then to to give the lectures that we that we kind of invented or made. Yeah, well, that was really thank you that on was behalf a of aspect. There was such a good program. I wish all the museums still had them. They're fantastic. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, but all of this has been, you know, influenced me because I liked looking at things. I liked, you know, been attracted to, um, you know, f the Far East and. When I was even even in in grade school, we had huge stacks of National Geographic's magazines, and I would always take those out. And I remember seeing pictures of India and Japan and China, and just being really interested in the imagery. I remember I, I remember seeing these tight those Thai temples and the complexity of them. Those were really fascinating to me as a kid. This this sort of just something I didn't see in, in a small town in Coshocton, Ohio, or on TV. No, and you can get it overstimulated, and then you have to find, and now I'm thinking about your work as I'm looking at Living Ends, and I'm like, of course, overstimulated, and trying to find the, the <laughs> sense between being overstimulated, in a sense, it, and that's enthusiasm, interest, intrigue, just having a heightened sense of awareness, taking things in, uh, so 
would that be far off? Do you get overstimulated by things? Uh, boy, yeah. Anyone that knows me knows that I'm easily stimulated. Um, you you had asked me this question uh, earlier uh, about if I could live with one work of art. What yeah. art work of art would I live with? And I it's a great answer. That, yeah, the Garden of Earthly Delights by Bosch, Hieronymus Bosch. There's so much. When I like what I like about art or a movie that I like will watch over and over again, it has to present something new to me every time I see it. Exactly. That's when I know that I'm looking at something great. To change the way you think and feel. Yeah, that it's like a, like a scrying into a mirror or looking into a uh, a crystal ball, so to speak where the mind is reflected back at itself that I love that. I love to be able to look at something and never tire of looking at it. And to make a painting, I imagined what if I just narrowed everything down and found that in one, one mark. And then I collectively over time, like I kind of come to this agreement with the painting where I work on it kind of blindly mark by mark with a very simple system of, you know, touching the last mark that I put down on one end or or, uh, using the edge of the other mark and letting it organically produce itself. But at some point I do have to make decisions compositionally. And then I sort of come to agreement to meet the painting halfway. I mean that by saying, the painting wants to do something and then I want to do something. And sometimes they don't work. They don't match up. So, and that's where the discipline comes in of trying to find the solution. Yeah. It's in, in, in um, Tai Chi, for instance, I used to do Tai Chi with a friend and I studied with uh, William C.C. C. Chen a little bit. And uh, there's this idea of being, it's like saying the difference between being passive and receptive um, being receptive, there's always sort of an active engagement, even though you're yielding, so to speak, to a pressure. And I'm, I try to sometimes when I'm, I'm having a difficult time in the, with the painting, I just have to sort of yield to it and say, man, I really want to, I really want to make a bold mark because I feel like the painting needs it, but it, it doesn't, I can't find the place to put it. So I'll continue until it presents itself. So I feel that in painting like this, the finished products or the finished result, the end result, for lack of a better terms, it's new to me. The mm-hmm. painting is revealing itself to me. So I feel that if, if it's fresh to me, then it'll be fresh to the viewer. Unbelievable. What is art for? Well, I think art is for, I, I said this before, I think it's for many things, it, I, but ultimately it's for self-realization. But if it's revealing itself to the individual, then I feel that it's also art is also for the viewer. So like good music or good art, it's going to resonate with certain people. So if it resonates with you and if you're, there's some aspect of yourself unfolding in it or some aspect of, of you know, larger than the self, for lack of a better term, then hopefully the viewer can vibrate with that. And the painting is alive or living They're living in the walls of Savile Row right now as we speak. (laughs) 
Yeah, I can't wait. You know, it's weird because I, I haven't seen the show yet. Um, it's interesting to see them in these um, walls that are very austere and uh, decorative. And it's sort of a, an interesting place to see them there in that kind of wall. If anyone's wondering which, where that is, it's Carl Costo Gallery. I always worry about how I'm pronouncing his last name, but I always yeah, worried about pronunciation anyway. But that's the gallery. It's on Savile Row. I think it's 12 Savile Row. The show's called Living Ends. Uh, it opened in March and will run until the 2nd of April, 2022, with a closing party on the 1st of April. April Fool's Day. Which you'll be at. No symbolism yeah. there. Is there. Yeah, it's a new moon too. So oh my it's God. a weird uh, mix of the, the new moon and April 1st, uh, uh, April Fool's Day. Clinton King, I'm ending this now. <laughs> And thanking you for your time. And I, Thank uh, you. I look forward to seeing you at the end of the month. Thank you. You've been listening to Maeve Doyle's Private View. I am an art critic and artistic director at Maddox Gallery. This podcast is produced by Will Fitzpatrick at Soho Radio. The music is by Korshid Homi. Thank you for listening.